This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, stay tuned in this half hour because we're going to kick off our giveaway Friday with perhaps, I'm just saying, maybe, maybe a pair of tickets to go and see Guns N' Roses in the next half hour. Keep listening for your chance to win. Right now, though, we're going to talk about friendship. Do you hold your friends to a high standard? Do you maybe require a certain amount of communication or maybe you're the type of friends who can just pick up where you left off after a period of time and you don't worry about the details of, you know, constantly catching up and spending time together. Because the thing is, friendship can be transactional and there are kind of ethics around that too. So what does that mean? How can there be ethics to friendship? We're going to talk about that with our next guest, actually. Dr. Kathy Mason is an assistant professor in philosophy at Central European University. Dr. Mason, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. This is a pretty big question, I think, for people to think about. I mean, are there ethics to friendship? Yeah, well, I would certainly say that there are. Um, and it's been a quite important topic for philosophy over the uh, centuries. This idea that there's an ethics of love, an ethics of friendship, that there are kind of standards you hold yourself to in being a friend, that it's not just a matter of positive feelings and enjoying time together, but that it's something you can do well or badly and you can sort of fall short as a friend, just like you can fall short in lots of other roles in life. So I would certainly say that, yeah, there is, a, there is an ethics of friendship and it's a very important part of our lives. Now, are those shared standards, like shared ethics, do you think, or are some people's idea of friendship just different from other people's? Yeah, there's certainly an extent to which um, in different friendships, there are different things that we expect of one another. But that's compatible with there also being some things that are sort of intrinsically important to friendship and some things that sort of matter, no matter what people care about. Um, so, you know, with some friends, you might have very specific kind of expectations for them, um, and sort of rules within your friendship, things that, that you hold them to and you'd be disappointed if they didn't live up to. But perhaps there might be these kind of underlying features as well, things that um, are necessary for friendship, and without those, you don't get any friendship at all. So I think there are probably elements of both, elements of um, kind of relativity, where you can set your own expectations within friendship, but also aspects that are just essential for friendship in the first place. What are some of those aspects that are essential for friendship, do you think? So um, this is, of course, a very contentious issue, but one sort of idea that I've been very interested in is thinking about the kind of um, role of things like love and knowledge within friendship. And I think that both of those things are going to be um, really uh essential for a good friendship. So thinking about friendship as involving knowledge can sound perhaps a little strange, but 
sort of thinking about it as involving understanding your friend, knowing who they are as a person, knowing what they're really like as an individual, and what their kind of deepest cares are, what, what their life is all about. That seems quite important in friendship. Um, so this sort of attentiveness to the other person is um, in the, the philosophy of Iris Murdoch, who I primarily work on, really central to, to love and to friendship, this idea that um, you really need to know the other person, you need to kind of patiently attend to them, to try and do justice to them, to try and understand what um, what they're all about. Um, you talked about Iris Murdoch. Why, why is that so important to this? Like, what did Iris Murdoch contribute to the idea of friendship? So her work is primarily on, on love and attention. And that's an idea that she gets uh, mainly from the work of Simone Pyle. Um, and those kind of, that kind of idea that there can be a virtue, there can be something morally excellent about um, kind of putting aside your own wants and your own wishes, perhaps those things you mentioned as being the more transactional side of interactions and just kind of attending to another person to see what they really are, what they really require from you, um, gives us this idea of a kind of responsiveness that I think is, is very intuitive. We want other people to see us who we are, to know what we're really like, and to respond to that, respond to our needs, respond to um, us. And I think there's something very attractive about that picture of, of love and of friendship, um, Dr. Mason, what I find interesting about that as well is that a lot of people, we have this idea of friendship being, oh, just easy. You've, you you meet somebody, you have shared interests, you develop a friendship and that's it. But what you're talking about is a much more kind of serious, a more cerebral relationship. Yes, definitely. Um, and that can be something quite surprising about that. But I think it's also um, quite accurate and honest. So this kind of picture of friendship, it's really like an ideal that we're kind of striving to live up to in our life. It's not something that we kind of casually fall into and don't think much about. Or perhaps we can casually fall into it sometimes without noticing that we're striving for this ideal. But there still needs to be that kind of striving for this ideal. It's quite a an onerous image of what love and friendship involve in our lives. It really is. It gives, it gives us something to think about for sure. Uh, Dr. Mason, thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. That's Dr. Kathy Mason, an assistant professor in philosophy at Central European University, talking about the idea of ethics and friendship. Like, what kind of a friend are you? Have you ever even thought about that? Do you think I'm a good friend? Do you make sure you keep in touch? Do you make sure you ask how your friends are doing? Or do you just, like, let friendships grow organically? That's the thing. Some of us, we haven't really thought too deeply about friendships, right? But this makes it sound like a very different situation, doesn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. And I'll say one thing about the village people. You could always understand exactly <laughs> what they were singing about. <laughs> okay, Unlike true. another band, that shall remain nameless. True. Okay, listen, it is not only Guns N' Roses. I have often made the joke that I have trouble understanding what Bob Dylan says when he sings. So this is not a new thing. Well, I'm not sure that Dylan understands what <laughs> Dylan is singing. <laughs> but it, uh, but I, I am struck, Simi, as a 
you know, I'm sort of on the sidelines uh, consuming popular culture. Uh, the number of artists out there now uh, who make a point of making sure you understand every word they say. I think, I think, enunciation. Uh, hard yes. rock. You know, we used to joke about what the hell the Rolling Stones were singing about, and people used to try to transcribe their lyrics like from Tumbling Dice. But now there's a, I think there's a real rise of clarity, uh, and it's encouraging. Maybe uh, the listeners, whether the, whether one agrees with the views of the singer is another matter, but I do think that some of the very, very successful people around now, like Taylor Swift, um, no question what she's singing about. That's, That's true. But you know who I was one of the first I can think of is Billy Joel. I've never had any problem understanding yeah. anything that Billy Joel says in a song. Even when he did that song, We Didn't Start the Fire, which is pretty complicated, I can understand every word. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good another good example. So uh, we right. go on. Uh, All right. But, uh, no, it's fun to listen to the uh, lyrics thing. Um, now, Guns and Roses, of course, are are latecomers to my uh, time as a music critic. Uh, village people were more like uh, what they were playing <laughs> on the radio when I was writing about music. Right, so but you no. just you just said that you're a Swifty, so we learned something new about Von Palmer this morning. <laughs> so that's good to know. Uh, let's talk about something that we haven't seen in a long time. We saw it yesterday, but it was a press conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, yeah. and it's about masking. Yeah, no, uh, look, when, when we went through 300 briefings with Dix and Dr. Henry during the pandemic, uh, the most briefings anybody's ever done on an issue in BC politics, one of the things that came through was this thing is going to be with us. It's not going away. And sure enough, there we were yesterday, Dix and Dr. Henry and talking about COVID is back. Well, it never went away. Uh, the deaths, hospitalizations, and cases are all on the rise. And along with it, we're getting a respiratory virus season. We're back with boosters. We're back with being told you're going to need to upgrade your immunity. Uh, we're back talking about masks and, and some of the things that they're not going to do yet, but it's with us, uh, they're with us, and we're all back into the same storyline again. And Right, and so we're talking masks, we're talking a, a booster campaign again. Yes, so the boosters are coming. Um, Health Canada approved the first one. Uh, interesting what they said about that. So most British Columbians have some immunity now from COVID. 80% of us have had it. And uh, some of us may not be aware of that, but that's what the stats indicate. And most of us are boosted, uh, vaccinated and boosted. So you put all that together, you get what Dr. Henry calls hybrid immunity. Uh, we've got some protection, but the protection fades. And it fades at different rates for different age groups. So uh, what they're doing is there's going to be a rollout for uh vaccines for both the uh, RSV, uh, respiratory viruses, and for COVID. Uh, the big difference, Simi, is we're not going to be, at least they said this yesterday, we're not going to be having these standalone clinics in communities for the most part. For the most part now, it'll be done through your pharmacy. And I can say uh, they're right on that one. Uh, while I was on holiday, I got a notification from the pharmacy I use here in Victoria that... Uh, vaccines are coming. We'll be eligible soon. I'm over 70, so I'm in the high-risk group or one of the high-risk groups, uh, pregnant people, uh, long-term care, and so on. The same vulnerable groups that were there in the past will be priorities, but eventually it'll be available to everyone and 
Dr. Henry said it, Adrian Dix said it, get vaccinated. You need the extra protection because whatever immunity you had has faded. And they talked as well, I understand, about the, the UBCM, that maybe that was a spreader event. <laughs> I heard this on your news, and it, it, the first I heard of it was reading the transcript of the press conference this morning. Um, yeah, so there are preliminary reports that uh, when all of the province's mayors and councillors got together for the annual convention of the Union of BC Municipalities, um, some of them... Uh, unwittingly, perhaps, brought COVID with them and spread it around. Now, Dr. Henry uh, was aware of it, uh, was very guarded in what she said. It is way too soon to declare it a super spreader event. But it did serve as a reminder for why particularly people who are vulnerable need to exercise precautions again. So they should be thinking about masking. They should be thinking about uh, indoor events again. They should go back to the old protocols of washing your hands, staying home when you're sick, all the stuff that we've heard before. You know, one thing you go, God, we, we as a society seem to have a very short attention span. So you wonder, are people even listening to this anymore? I guess the one thing that came through to me yesterday, uh, Simi, and again, reading the transcript this morning, is um, you should pay attention to this stuff. It's here and it's going to remain. And we're going to go through this probably every year, fall respiratory season. The hospitals are going to fill up again. There are going to be concerns about staffing. Way too many people, uh, depending on the ER and healthcare workers themselves being off sick. You put all that together again. I, people may be tired of this storyline, but it's a real one. And here we go again. We are back now with Bob Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. I mean, I understand that Bob Dylan song. That's like the easiest one to understand, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, that's certainly one of the easier ones. I guess maybe it's also one of his most famous. Uh, uh, you can go to Hard Rain. Uh, it's going to fall. You can You can argue about whether or not the song is really about nuclear holocaust or not, uh, but it's uh, it's the one that Patti Smith chose to uh, recite in Stockholm when she accepted the Nobel Prize for Literature on behalf of Dylan. So uh, I, think, I think with Dylan, the argument is more um, the implications of what he's singing about than not being able to get the words. And also, I guess some people are put off by his singing, although I think he's one of the greatest singers of all time. <laughs> I know you think that. I well, love talking talk about that. You want to you argue about some other stuff? No, this morning, no, too? no. I, I would never, Vaughn, argue about music with you. Never. I defer to you completely. Uh, we can't argue about people being nimbies, though, because this, this story yeah. from Vancouver is really kind of entertaining, kind of sad that they're still arguing about the importance of view cones in the city. Yeah, Vista. So a good piece in the paper today in The Sun uh, by my colleague, uh, Sarah Grochowski, uh, on City of Vancouver is revisiting, starting next week, at least there's a motion to revisit. ABC has said they want to look into this. The protection of views. So you buy a place and one of your possessions is the view and of the mountains or the ocean and that is being used to block or at least 
significantly alter new construction in the city because there's, what, 26 locations in Vancouver where the VISTA is protected and the city council has been enforcing that over the years. And what, you, what you've had is major projects that have been reduced or changed in order to protect the views of the people that are already there. So classic NIMBY issue, a controversial, you know, you bought the place in part because you like the view of the mountains, but the city is going, wait a minute, we got to build a lot more housing and increase the density in the city. And to what degree should we allow view protection keep us from doing that. When you look at the map of the view cones, though, I think it's pretty clear that some of them can be altered. Some of them just are like a a wide swath. And you think, well, maybe we need to take a look at these because they were established, what, like 30 years ago? Yeah, they were established back in the 1980s. And yeah, I understand why people are going to fight to protect their view. But no, I think you're right. I think the, the talk around it, and you'll see this in the story in the paper today, is we should narrow some of these protections, maybe eliminate some of them altogether. And I would note from uh, reading the coverage on the housing issue around the province, there are other municipalities where this is an issue as well, where buildings uh, don't get to be as high as the developer proposed or even the city supported because it's gonna block somebody's view. So there's a lot of this going on around the province. Provincial government uh, noticed this week Ravi Kalan said, we're going to get more legislation this fall restricting the grounds for uh, zoning and putting up barriers against housing expansion. I don't know if they're going to touch on views, but they probably should. In general, uh, we are going to have to um, sacrifice what people consider part of the big part of the character and the quality of life of communities around British Columbia if we're going to significantly increase density and housing affordability. You know what's so interesting, Vaughn, is that as we're talking about this, about kind of breaking down these barriers to building more housing, we get an idea, don't you think, of what has held us up for the last few decades. This is one of those things. We briefly touched on the Oak Bay response yesterday too, but these attitudes have been kind of cemented into place over decades. They're going to be hard to break. Yeah, they are. The blow up, you've reported on this this week, the blow up between the federal housing minister and Metro Vancouver, where the minister was coming out here for a couple of major housing announcements. And he said, I'm not coming because Metro Vancouver is proposing to add to development fees that will add, I don't know, 10 to $20,000 per unit. A big part of the reason that housing is so expensive are these regulatory restrictions, development fees, the long, long time it takes to get projects approved. All of that goes into the mix. And sure, there are other things that government needs to do, but we are, Simi, you're right, going to have to make major changes in our thinking if we're actually going to increase density in the city particularly density for the kind of housing that's been stalled and blocked in the past. Okay, so there's that. Also, I have to quickly ask you about gas prices. Have they gone up in Victoria as well? Yes, the uh, Victoria, the reported price yesterday, and I wasn't filling up, so I'm going relying on the story in the Times Columnist, uh, $2.20 a litre. I have a trivia question for you, Simi. What was the gasoline prices price in British Columbia when John Horgan 
uh, <laughs> indulged himself in that giant political stunt of a public inquiry into gasoline prices. Hmm. I'm going to guess, just going out on a limb here, less than what we're seeing right now. <laughs> yeah, $1.70 a liter. So they've gone up 30% since then. Uh, my second question to you is, uh, what did that public inquiry actually accomplish other than the spending of a million dollars and John Horgan scoring a bunch of political points? Hmm, uh, nothing? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a total political stunt from the outset. And you could tell that because the terms of reference for the inquiry, the inquiry wasn't allowed to look into the impact of provincial taxes and regulations on gasoline prices. So the inquiry came back with a report that, that the New Democrats seized on and said, uh, this is in 2019, so ancient history, the New Democrats seized on the report and said, see, we've found proof of gouging. Well, that was four years ago. Well, they've got a majority in the legislature and they've had that since after the election. Yep. So what have they done about this gouging that they found? The answer is absolutely nothing. But Simi, they have increased taxes on gasoline and they have toughened regulation on it as well. And the price is now 30% higher than when they promised to get to the bottom of the problem and fix it. Thanks for the reality check, Vaughn. Have a good weekend. This is Mornings with Simi. If you have never read the novel Five Little Indians, I can't tell you enough that you are missing out. It was the debut novel a few years ago for our next guest, Michelle Good, an award-winning Cree writer and member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. It took the issue of dealing with the trauma of residential school abuse and families, and it, it just propelled it into a national conversation. And it is a conversation that continues in Canada, especially over the next few days. And I'm so honored that Michelle Good is with us now to help us make that conversation happen right here. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Did you sense when you were writing originally Five Little Indians that it would be such a seminal book? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no? What was that like? Uh, no. No. I mean, I, I sat down to write that book with a very specific purpose. And, um, you know, that was to try to shed light on why the impact of residential school abuses and the system itself continued to resonate in the community in response to that sort of terrible thing that we would hear all the time, why can't they just get over it? So, I mean, I knew that I had, you know, inside information, if you will, that I was more knowledgeable about that than, you know, your average bear, but I really had no clue that it would be, uh, you know, responded to in this way. I thought it would be a niche book for a niche audience. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> no, yeah, you were wrong about that. In a nice way. You were wrong in a nice way. Um, in a great way. <laughs> yes, that's true. Let's talk about the second book as well, because truth-telling is very different. And what made you want to try something different like this? Well, um, actually, I was. I had already started working on a second novel. And when I you know, experienced the tremendous response to Five Little Indians and what I perceived as, you know, a profound willingness among non-Indigenous Canadians to enter into this conversation, I thought, this is a moment to capitalize on. Because, you know, and I go into this in, in the new book, residential schools was not the first implement that was used against us from the, from the colonial toolkit. There were 
so many things that were done through law and policy to subjugate and oppress Indigenous people in this country. And then they came for the children. And so I wanted to raise some of those things and, you know, with a particular theme of getting under the myth of Canadian history and articulating Canadian history as it was experienced through the the lens of Indigenous experience. Is that profound willingness, as you call it, do you think it's still there? Has it held? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I have been, oh, wait a minute, I'm on my sixth presentation this week, coming up tomorrow. And it is, beca- it is at the request of, of companies, organizations. It's not just literary events. Um, it's regular Canadian schools, universities, that want to get into this conversation, that are committed to it. And it's very satisfying, I must say. What is the message that you take in those presentations? What do you tell people? Well, I, I talk about history. I talk about what the experience has meant to us. And I talk about how we must get under that myth of Canadian history if we ever expect to have substantive reconciliation. And I ask them to imagine things like, what if Indigenous people had received 1% of the wealth that has been generated in this country since first contact? How different would our circumstances be? And, you know, and to use that as what are the kinds of things we must look at to move forward to a time when we can become not only economically self-sufficient, but to retain or to reassert jurisdiction in our territories and to deal with the rest of Canada as the equal partners that we were when we were negotiating treaties. So we're talking, we're listening. Are we making progress, do you think? Um, I think so, but I also think that, well, no, I know so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've been doing this kind of work since I was 18 years old, and the kind of responses and willingness that I experience now um, in my 60s would have, I couldn't even have imagined it back then. But how did you keep up doing it, though? There has been... There must have been so much frustration when you weren't getting those, all those years you didn't get that kind of response. Like, how did you keep (laughs) doing it, Michelle? Well, you know, I I can revise that question because I've been asked this on multiple occasions, and that is, are you hopeful, Michelle? And my answer to that is yes, and that you must, if you believe that something is possible, then it behooves us to be hopeful and to, to be energized by that hope and the belief in what you're doing. Well, that's a beautiful thought. I kind of want to hold that right there, but I still want to talk to you for a little bit more (laughs) because that's a good thing for all of us, I think, to remember what is the message that you would like people to think about on this day? Yeah. Me? Yes. What would you like us to think about? Yeah. Is uh, so many things. Um, But one is to engage in some self-examination in the sense of questioning what you think you know about Canadian history Mm. and about the experience of Indigenous peoples in Canada. And then to go forward and to use your privilege that non-Indigenous Canadians have to promote 
systemic change for substantive reconciliation. I like that. Examine what you think you know. That would hold for so many things these days, wouldn't it? Yeah, and reconsider. Just reconsider. Come to this with an open mind. Yeah. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's Michelle Good. Michelle is the award-winning author of Five Little Indians and Truth-Telling, books that if you have not read, you absolutely should add to your list. And we have to tell you here too, if you or someone you know is experiencing emotional distress or trauma from residential schools, help is available 24-7 for survivors and their families through the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line at one 866 Nine two five four four one nine. This is Mornings with Simi. We've heard an awful lot the last few years about ground-penetrating radar. It's been used especially at the sites of former residential schools to search the grounds, but we wanted to learn more as well about about how it is being used. What is this technology? What exactly does it do? So joining us now to help us out with that is Dr. Andrew Martindale, a professor of archaeology at UBC and member of the National Advisory Committee on Residential Schools, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials. Dr. Martindale, thank you for being here. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. This is such an interesting topic because I feel like we've heard a lot about this in the last couple of years, but do we really understand what the work is like? It is a complex endeavor uh, to use this technology for this purpose. Um, Ground penetrating radar is a lot like navigational radar that we'd find in boats. We send out a signal from a transmitter and then we pick up reflections with a receiver uh, in the context of of ground searches, uh, the signal goes in a few meters into the ground, and we're, we're detecting in the reflection differences in the ground surface. And this technology has been around for, for many decades. It's used in industry to locate pipes and other buried infrastructure. It's used in archaeology to find uh, architecture. And it has, of course, for a long time, had an application in mapping out unmarked graves in cemeteries. And that's really what the, the, the history of it is in, in this purpose. Residential school landscapes, as we know, have cemeteries, both formal and informal, and in some cases, maybe more than we know right now, clandestine burials. And radar, or ground-penetrating radar, is one tool that we can use, certainly within cemetery contexts, and we are refining it as we look in, in less formal places as well. Okay, well, let's talk about the refining process, because I understand the thing about the radar is that it doesn't detect organic matter, but it kind of looks for anomalies in soil composition. But what does that mean? Yeah, the word uh, the, the words that you'll hear include anomalies and targets, and uh, those are kind of distancing languages. But but the the, the reality is we, we map out difference, and one of the key differences that we can typically detect are are, are ground disturbances. So what we'll see with radar would be the actual excavation of the grave shaft, more so than the content. That's not entirely true. There's a little bit of relationship. But we're really able to map out in most contexts, certainly in cemetery contexts, where the grave shafts were. Um, because the background of a cemetery is typically doesn't have a lot of other stuff going on, and the grave then stands out. They're often in regular shape, regular rows. And so the radar works really well within cemeteries. So the refinement is, as we move into places around residential schools, where the cemeteries were less formal, the background geology can be a little bit noisier, a little bit busier, and the graves themselves that we might be looking for may not be standard 
in the rectangular shape of the dimensions that we'll typically find in a historic cemetery. So those things add a little bit of uncertainty to our ability to locate uh, patterns that look like graves. Okay, are we learning as we go on this? And is that what the committee's work is also all about? Yeah, exactly. This is a, an application that has had a lot of use around the world, um, but this purpose, and of course, within cemetery contexts, you know, this, uh, there's a there's a population of, of children from from these schools who died at school and are buried in the cemeteries, which is a tragedy in and of itself. Children shouldn't go to school and die. Um, then we have a population of children who are in places that are less formal, uh, graveyards that, that the administrators of these institutions created uh, that are perhaps not quite the same as a, as a more formal graveyard. And of course, we know uh, that there are cases of, of, of well, really criminal behavior where we see what we call clandestine burials, hidden hidden graves. And those are more difficult. So as we use this technology, and it is used by police forces around the world in forensics contexts, there is a, a degree of refinement that is uh, needed. But I will remind you that radar doesn't really, it's not here to find any new truth to this story. We already know the truth. Uh, we have ample evidence from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work from survival from the archives. We know that children died in these institutions. We know of the criminal behavior that occurred. We know of the deaths. We don't prove anything. What we're really doing is simply bringing a degree of kind of specificity of, of, of location to these particular places. Um, and it's a long work. It'll take a long time, probably decades. There are a lot of these places. The settlement agreement identifies 145 institutions across the country. And the settlement agreement between the government of Canada uh, and, and its Indigenous citizens was was designed to some extent to limit the number of institutions that were considered residential schools. So there's a whole probably array of other institutional landscapes, hospitals, kind of homes, places where children might have ended up that are not yet kind of in our focus. Um, so the work ahead is going to be complicated. It's going to take a long time. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Oh, well, my pleasure. That is Dr. Andrew Martindale, Professor of Archaeology at UBC and a member of the National Advisory Committee on Residential Schools, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials, talking about the use of ground-penetrating radar. It is highly technical and complicated, but and they're also learning as they go, uh, but it has become a crucial tool when it comes to providing a little bit more certainty, as Dr. Martindale put it, when it comes to uh, you know mapping out on marked burials and just trying to find out what really happened here in terms of where everything is. And we're going to be hearing more about that today as well, because of course, tomorrow is Truth and Reconciliation Day, and there will be lots of discussion. There is lots of discussion going on about this. This is Mornings with Simi. The court has ruled in the best interest of the children. Karina Kuchur will be stripped of her rights as biological mother. No, they're lying. It's not true. I... Please. Can we please remove the children from the court? No, please, please. They're my children. I hereby order you, Ms. Kuchur. Sir, now. What is that? Well, that is a clip from a short film called Through Darkness, I See You. It's produced and directed by Eugenia Couture. It's not easy talking about an issue like the 60s scoop, let alone turning it into an award-winning short film, but that's exactly what she did. So let's hear about this now from Eugenia herself, who joins us. Good morning, and thank you for being here. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Listen, just he, that one little part that we played there, Eugenia, was so um, like it's so emotional in that. How did you make a whole movie like this? Um, it was uh, it was it definitely was a struggle for sure because it is a very emotional. It has a very emotional impact on me as well. But it was super important for me as um, a mother and a foster parent and uh, a, care, a caregiver for other people to express what I went through through a film. Um, because I did write a book and I wanted more people to see it and visually feel it because so many survivors have gone through this and it's hard to understand what that looks like unless, unless you've actually been there. So can you tell us a little bit about your story then? What brought you to the place where you wanted to tell it to a wider audience? Yes, of course. Um, as a child, uh, at the age of four, I went into the system, um, and I'm an, an Indigenous child. And uh, as a Métis child, it was very hard because going through the system, I could you know, feel the pain and see live through the experience, and uh, I didn't have the support that I needed. So I really wanted to help other people who had gone through this and understand it and, and, and be able to encourage others to come out and be their voice and know that there is support, there is help, and uh, this is the only way I could do it, is through doing a movie and doing uh, my story. But how challenging was that, Eugenia, when you told people, I'm going to make a movie about the 60s scoop? Like, what kind of reactions did you get? I felt like it was really positive. Uh, I, I felt, you know, everybody was on board. Uh, they knew, uh, many people knew about it because of my book, Adoption Not an Option. And so I felt that um, there was mo- so much more out there once I had written the book. Before before I had written the book, you know, it's such a self-telling story. I didn't know if people would understand or appreciate, the, you know, me writing that kind of work. But at the same time, I knew if I didn't do it, I would not be a voice for others. And working as an advocate for so many years, uh, it just felt like that was the next step I needed to go. And so what has it done for you to be able to talk about this openly, to have people say, I see you, I hear you with your story. Has that helped? Oh, yes. Um, there's been so many people on board who've been so supportive. Uh, I, you know, once you, 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 you give away that part of you that to others, that's where the difference really comes. And that's the hardest part is because you are now letting go of something that is so personal and uh, painful and that's how you give something back to your community, to your your family, to all those who don't know what you've been through. That's how they you educate them and help them to understand what that looks like. Do you think, Eugenia, are there still people out there who don't know about the story about the 60s scoop? Absolutely. I cannot believe really? how many people do not know because... In the in the film industry, uh, you know, I'm constantly talking about what that looks like as a, a director and a filmmaker, and I go to a lot of festivals and whatnot, and people have no idea what what that is. They don't know, and here we are as Canadians, and we don't know 
in our own country what this is. And so it's super important to me to express and talk about that. So to educate others. Yeah, if that's the case, then when people see your film for the first time, what kind of reactions do you get? It's uh, it depends. Uh, most people are really on board and understand and want to know more and want to help and want to support the situation and educate others. So, like I have definitely found out, especially through the book, uh, where. This benefits like uh, the universities who are trying to uh, teach social workers and uh, educate young people in the school system as well. Like that's where the book has really, really been uh, phenomenal because it's helped so many people understand what uh, children and families go through when they when they're part of the 60s school. Yeah. Do you think the foster care system like has it improved at all or do you think it's still broken? It has improved. It has come a long ways in, in comparison to what I went through as a child. There's still room to grow for sure. And uh, I can see that, especially being a foster parent myself for an Indigenous child, I know that there's room for improvement, but it has definitely you know, done better, but there's still a long way to go. What can we do? What do you think should be on the top of that list? Uh in a perfect world, I would like to see where we had families, instead of breaking up families, we had social workers and um, people who could come into the home and help. Where instead of breaking the family apart, we had people come in, help the families to build and uh, begin to have a successful layout for their children instead because I see too too often that kids are taken away, and, and sometimes that's really important that kids are taken away because of the situation of the family, if it's really dire. But I think, well, too often we are separated for the wrong reasons. Right, there might be, so what you're saying is to give an option to those families to say, we can either help you fix what's broken or we need to protect the kids and take them out. You got it, exactly. And that doesn't happen? we need more of that. We need more of having social workers, uh, uh, caregivers that come into the home where we can benefit the family. Because once a child is taken away from a family, that's where the trauma starts. You know, that's where it, uh, maybe there's already trauma in the home, but that only advance, it like makes it bigger and makes it worse for the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eugenia, and, what's, what's next for you? Uh, right now, the next big project is to continue with filmmaking and to get the story out because I feel like that is the best way to uh, educate people in the in the in in the community and in our in our country is to see it from a child's eye to understand what it looks like and to learn from what's happened to kids in care. Um, my story begins with me closer as a child of the age of four, and I want people to see how that looks so that they understand when a child goes into care, what what does that cause for the child? What do they, what do they live through? Like for my situation, I moved 11 times, and I know kids that have moved way many, so many times more than that, and we need to fix that. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us this morning. 
Thank you so much. And thank you for having me here. Anytime. That's Eugenia Couture. Check out the work that she has done, whether it's her book, which is called Adoption is Not Not an Option, or the movies that she has made. She made a short film, executive producer and director of Through Darkness, I See You, and working on one called The Big Whiteout. That's Eugenia Couture. Now, if you or someone you know is experiencing emotional distress or trauma from situations like the 60s scoop, free counseling and crisis intervention services are available from the Hope for Wellness helpline. That number is one 242 This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about technology this morning and how it isn't always equitable. It moves so fast that often people can get left behind. It's kind of what we see happening again with artificial intelligence and digitization. And you know what? There's actually work being done to make sure Indigenous groups in particular don't get left behind. But what does that work look like? Ah, that's where our next guest comes in. Denise Williams is with us, a member of the Couch and Tribes and visiting lecturer at Simon Fraser University. Denise, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, this sounds like a huge challenge. Where do you even start when you're talking about helping people catch up with technology? Well, it's it's a good question and one that's been going on for maybe 20, 25 years in First Nations communities in Canada. We've been disproportionately uh, left out of the conversation, especially when it comes to building just basic uh, infrastructure to to connectivity, uh, broadband access. And so, um, yeah, it's something that the First Nations Technology Council has worked uh, a long time on um, and is still, you know, really moving to try to understand how we can work with different levels of government, industry, philanthropy, academia um, to advance uh, that work. It takes a little bit um, of political and regulatory and legislative uh, change and political will to make happen in this country. Um, and so that's why uh, I'm doing a little bit of work with the First Nations Technology Council on building Canada's first First Nations digital equity strategy um, to center Indigenous voices and bring all of these different parties around the table to understand what the desire of First Nations peoples uh, is to have uh, these digital and connected technologies come into their lives, into their communities. And now with the advancement of artificial intelligence, um, again, we're looking at what's going to be kind of a force multiplier of uh, how those technologies are going to change um, the landscape, uh, the economic landscape, um, again, because these types of technologies are going to uh, impact every aspect uh, of our lives and um, in a much faster way, I think, is what we predict than what uh, connectivity uh, has in the last couple of decades. Right. So if there's a gap then, Denise, is that gap going to get even bigger, even faster? Because if we can't catch up even from the internet, right, it's been so slow. And as you put out, there's places that still don't have proper internet connectivity. AI is going to leave things in the dust, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a potential risk and I think it's 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 uh, especially going to affect indigenous peoples in Canada it will affect um many Canadians and so I think it's something that is becoming more of a live conversation about what that um what that inequity is going to look like and how do we uh you know as a country as indigenous peoples with um specific um rights and and title in this country um begin to organize to to be able to address that I think 
think one thing, uh, you know, that I've been thinking a lot about is um, how actually um, AI could become uh, actually a force multiplier of advancing digital equity. Uh, I think that there are some specific ways that we can use this um, technology in a good way, um, all very preliminary, you know, in terms of thinking, because we're all kind of new to this conversation. But um, I do think that there are some ways that um, Indigenous peoples harnessing the power of artificial intelligence could mean um, rapid advancements in our ability to um, uh, uh, have our language um, uh, more prominent in the way that our peoples listen to things like even like media, right. because artificial intelligence is going to allow podcasts and other ways that we we consume information, um, potentially through its large language model integrations to um, have us be able to listen to things in Indigenous languages. And so I'm curious about what that looks like and if that's something that uh, could actually advance Indigenous people's interests in in, uh, in our languages. And, and then I kind of think about, too, the repatriation of our data. So data sovereignty is a big conversation. What do you, what do you um, mean? What does that mean, repatriation of the data? What kind of data? Yes. Yeah, so First Nations communities in particular have been reporting to provincial and federal governments, federal governments primarily um, since, since colonization and um, the Indian Act. And so a lot of data about our communities, about our people, all lives in different disparate um, systems across uh, across the, the, the Canadian federal government. Um, I think that there could be an opportunity um, to use AI to uh, quickly um, uh, organize that data and have it housed within First Nations communities so that they can understand um, longitudinal um, questions about their about their communities and be able to uh, own that data, which is actually a a uh, First Nations approach uh, called OCAP, which is a very important framework. Ownership, control, access, and possession of our data is a very important topic in in this country, and I think AI might have the ability to advance it. So you talked about though needing you know sometimes this little push to get that the regulations and and get the lawmakers on board. Like, is the support there? Is progress being made? Well, this is one of the reasons I think uh, AI could be, like I say, a force multiplier of digital equity. Is one of the challenges with basic infrastructure um, like broadband technology or cellular connectivity is it actually requires government to come on board and make investment. There needs to be the political will there to do that. And over the last couple of decades, we've seen a lot of money go into connectivity and infrastructure bills, and our communities tend to not benefit not only in in getting the builds done. At, at, a, at, a, at a fast rate, but also not addressing the issues of sustainability um, and affordability. So I think the difference with um, AI is that it's got a different level of proliferation. So uh, this is actually in the hands of users today. It's not actually, you know, uh, we're not knocking on the government doors saying, hey, we want access to artificial intelligence and then this technology. It exists today and anybody can access it and anybody can use it. And it's going to have an omni-use um, uh, uh, presence in our lives. And so Indigenous people, uh, you know, could have the ability to use this um, technology 
to advance this conversation in a, in a way with with information um, and with information that uh, we have never really had at our fingertips before um, to perhaps advance our our uh, our our intention on this issue. Wow, it sounds like it has the potential to be transformational. Denise, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thanks so much for asking.